If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Drew is just back from Austin, where you were at Fantasy Fest, is that correct? Fantastic Fest, yes, I was there for the weekend and saw a bunch of weird movies, none of which had any animation, sadly, but it was still a wonderful time, and uh, love that film festival, so if you ever get down to Austin... It is just, it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. Cool. That's where I was sitting behind animation historian Leonard Malton on the plane out there. So there's that connection. Very cool. Okay. Did I ever tell you my Leonard Malton story? No. This was 2005 or thereabouts. The Philadelphia Film Society was honoring Roy E. Disney. And so who did he opt to have interview him on stage but Leonard Malton? And this was after the whole save Disney thing. Roy was being folded back into the company at this point. This is right after, I want to say, Eisner had exited and Iger was picking up the reins. And so at the end of the program, people were invited to get Roy's autograph and mile-long line to get Roy's autograph. But Leonard is sort of hanging in the lobby and I walk up to Leonard and introduce myself and he's like, Jim Hill? I thought Jim Hill was a myth. I said, I thought you were like three guys. It's like, no, 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 just one of me. But what I gave him to sign, I brought it with me down from New Hampshire, was the very first Disney reference book that I ever bought was Leonard's The Disney Films. I right. must have been in high school at the time. I, I bought the hardcover with the money that I made, I think, working at the Fine Arts Cinema in, in Maynard, Massachusetts. And Leonard actually teared up. It was kind of like you brought, oh my God, because there had been three or four editions <laughs> at that point. And it's like, this was my first reference book. And you know, the fact that this was how I you know, made my living now. And you know he knew my work and it was like, this is cool. So he you know signed that up. But have you seen how he and his daughter are sort of mutating his sight, bringing in different voices and all that. Yeah, it's great. She was at the at the festival as mm-hmm. well. I actually called him one time because I was doing a story about that weird Dick Tracy special that he did with Warren Beatty. Oh. Do you remember oh, that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think I was the only person who's ever asked him about that special, and so we had a lovely chat, and it turned out to be a great article and so he's always been very nice to me so he's done such wonderful work in fact you, you've obviously seen the trailers for the john c Riley, stan and ollie laurel and hardy movie that that's coming oh yes well leonard wrote a, an amazing book about movie comedy teams that i'm gonna love to see what he has to say about stan and ollie when it finally comes out but well, anyway, getting back to this past weekend, while you were in Austin, you know, there was a chunk of Disney news that broke. Yes. The whole Princess Tiana controversy, which I, I guess the weird thing for me is this whole Disney princesses thing has really been going on since, what, June, when the, the second trailer dropped. And do you remember how people back then were like, oh, oh my God, Cinderella has ears now. Right. Well, do you want to talk about what this controversy is? Yeah. That is... I guess when the initial trailer dropped, people have known about how Tiana looked since 
the D23 Expo. Yeah, that was July of last yeah. year. So, right? Yeah. So, why this bubbles up now? I guess the crowd that attended that event, and I guess there were 8,000 people in the, the, the hall there, but, you know, nobody said boo about how Tiana looked at that point. But right. once it got into wide circulation, there was a lot of concern about how Tiana's skin had been lightened, what her her nose had been sort of narrowed, narrowed and, yeah. you know, that less prominent lips and that sort of thing. And it was one of these things where they were trying to make this group of princesses, this collection of princesses for this whole Vanellope meets the princesses scene. Snow White is from 1937, you know, and it has a very different look and she's hand-drawn. And to make her work in a scene where you put her right alongside Rapunzel and Merida and Anna and Elsa and Moana, you were going to have to futz with the looks. And, and so all of the hand-drawn princesses got futzed with. Cinderella was the one that people initially pointed to because they're like, where did the ears come from? But, right. you know, now comes Tiana. And Mark Henn, the guy who did Jasmine and Belle and, uh, and Tiana for uh, Princess and the Frog, was the guy who was sort of calling the shots on how they were designed and how they were tweaked to work as hand-drawn princesses and the CG princesses. Mark had his marching orders. He was supposed to make them look like a uniform group. He may have gone a, a little too far. Right. But in a totally innocent way, this this wasn't deliberately done to defend members of the black community. Uh, Anika Nani Rose, in fact, just today, there's the story that broke about her interactions that once people got to see this and she was kind of initially upset because I guess her conversations with Mark back when they first did the character for the hand-drawn uh, Musker and Clements feature was she said you know when we're doing this character I want a wide nose I want full lips I want a deep rich color because that's what little black kids look like and that's what they want to see up there in the screen evidently she reached out just over the past couple of weeks and Disney had a meeting with her, and in addition to all of the other complaints, to Disney's credit, they have now addressed it. Initially, what I heard, it wasn't it complaints about Tiana's hair? That was part of it, too, yeah. yeah. That her hair was, like, different. I don't remember what specifically the complaint was, but that was a big complaint initially as well. Yeah, yeah. so... Which they seem, to, they seem to have addressed all of those I, issues, maybe? I hope so. When you talk with people at Disney, they talk about how you spend three and four years working on a character, and then the movie comes out, and that's not your character anymore. That's the world's character. John Lasseter used to tell this, this great story about how when he was working on Toy Story, and I think it was just a day or so after... Toy Story had come out in theaters and he was flying back home up to the studio still Bates in Port Richmond and I guess he flew into SFO and he as he arrived at the gate there was this little boy clearly waiting for his dad to get off the plane but he was holding a Woody doll and John was so conflicted because it was like you know wanted to go up and that, that character that's mine you know I, I spent four years working on this this movie and you you bought the character but it's like no this is his Woody doll. This was what he wanted to show his dad. And so Woody kind of went in the rearview mirror. He went out and he'd been released into the world. And, and that's the thing with Tiana, that there's so many young African-American girls, and to be honest, some not-so-young African-American girls who 
who take great pride in this character. And when they saw her as she was in the scene from Ralph Breaks the Internet, it was like, that's not the Tiana I remember from the movie. And you have to fix this. You have to make this right. And that they have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I give Disney a lot of credit, and I give Mark Han a lot of credit, too, because he is obviously, I mean, you know Mark, he's like the sweetest man in the he world, is. and he's so committed to these characters. Mm-hmm. Remember when Jeffrey Katzenberg called him the Julia Roberts of animation, <laughs> because he was animating all these yeah. princesses? Yeah. But um, um, it was interesting how the princess element was sort of played down in the most recent Ralph Breaks the Internet trailer, which released right after we recorded our last mm-hmm. show last week. Did you have any thoughts on that trailer? Well, we're getting into the meat of the story here now, finally. We've gotten to meet Shank. We get to see Vanellope dropped into a sort of Grand Theft Auto world and doing quite well. I was just watching Wreck-It Ralph again. The really sweet note that the movie ends on where, you know, Ralph is being picked up by the nice landers and it's that's his favorite part of the day because he can see Vanellope at her game and the right. kids love her and she's now a success and but there's a line at the end of the movie and it's like you know and if that little kid loves me I can't be that bad a guy mm-hmm. but to hear Rich talk that's not necessarily a very healthy way to have your self-worth it's like as long as this little kid thinks well of me I'm I'm a good guy right. it's like I'm I'm just kind of intrigued if you can pull a whole movie out of that conceit that Ralph, you know, has to sort of grow beyond Vanellope thinks well of him. It's the very thing that they talk about in the trailer when Vanellope's talking with Shank to the effect of sometimes best friends don't have to have the same dreams. I really want this one to work. You know, the whole notion of going to the dark net, it's like, they're really going to go there. Yeah. It looks very busy. There's a look, there, it looks like there's a lot of stuff in this yeah. movie. Yeah. So I'm just hoping it all kind of coalesces into a decent experience. Speaking of experiences, we didn't talk about the Void announcement that that Wreck-It Ralph is coming to the Void. Yes, same thing. It's one thing to do that as sort of a Star Wars thing where you're you're on a mission. I'm going to be intrigued just to see how they do the Wreck-It Ralph world in, in that space. Are they talking about it being a trial for a actual attraction as well? Because that's one of the things that's been rumored for so long to go into the alien encounter space in Magic Kingdom is a Wreck-It Ralph attraction. Is that something that's still on the drawing board? And is this VR sort of a um, test for that? When I, I reached out to a friend of Imagineering about that, there was this kind of a long pause and it was like, can I not say anything about that? Because <laughs> the void is kind of controversial from an Imagineering point of view. The Imagineers love to put you into spaces like the auction scene from Pirates. The void, because you are looking into a pair of goggles, and yes, you are walking around a space, but you're still basically looking at a screen. Right. There's a bunch of Imagineers who, if you look at Oculus Rift, if you look at the the technology that people already have at home, it's like, we're trying to convince people to pay $100 to come through the door at Disneyland or the the Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, and to use a technology like that. And, And the other thing, frankly, is that the void is going to be the Glendale Galleria, you know, as a standalone attraction. You know, I love it. You go to Target, you get some soap, and then you uh, go experience uh, 
shadows of the empire you know it's great See, that's the problem as far as the, <laughs> the imaginators are concerned it, this is competition now for the disney company for the executives there it's like no this is r&d we are gauging interest in Wreck-It Ralph. We want to see how well this performs as a standalone attraction and if there's a strong enough base. I mean, that's the other thing, that there's there's an argument in-house that Wreck-It Ralph, as popular as the first film was, hasn't necessarily done the business that would warrant bringing it into the park. Right. Even if you look at the Facebook, there's only, I think, only 3 million Facebook followers or something, yeah. which is not huge for a Disney property on Facebook. But, you know, the interesting thing is in two months when Ralph breaks the Internet and this character is, is out in front again, I would bet you we're going to see larger numbers there. So, you know, the Sugar Rush uh, ride idea has been something that Disney has been, forgive me for using this analogy, but kicking the tires on. <laughs> for two plus years at this point and right. i think they want a little more convincing that there's a genuine interest over this so combination of the void combination of how the film does starting in two months time let's see where we are in january thereabouts speaking right. of january that january december window is when officially we have uh, mr lassiter leave the building and there's been a lot of talk lately about John. And in fact, did you see the interview? Let's see. I want to say... The Hollywood Reporter interview yeah, with yeah. Iger. Uh, yeah. Matthew that was Bologna. interesting. In the middle of that, and this got a lot of play early in the week because this is where Iger admitted that, okay, maybe we're making too many Star Wars movies. and Right. He also doubled down on the James Gunn decision. He did. He did. The language there that executives brought him this decision, they'd already made it, and he wasn't going to second-guess their decision. Which brings us to what he had to say about Lassiter. That Matthew Bologna asks, has the culture at Pixar changed in the past eight months since the exit of John Lassiter? Iger gave sort of a classic non-answer answer. It says, anytime you change leadership, there is going to be an inevitable culture shift. There was a culture shift at Disney when I took over for Michael Eisner after 21 years. John was in his role for a long time, had an enormous influence on both the culture and creativity of Pixar. So, of course, in John leaving, there is inevitable culture change. To get into the details, I'd prefer not to. Interesting. Yeah. We're going to probably see, with Ralph Breaks the Internet, the first trailer for Toy Story 4. Yes. Or at the very least, by Mary Poppins Returns. How do you promote that movie? Especially given that this originally started out supposedly as John's Valentine to his his wife, uh, Nancy. You know, how, how do you promote that movie in a John Lasseter-free environment? Did you get a sense when you were at some of the, the press stuff for Pixar Pier and that sort of thing? Were they, were they struggling or? No, it was just... It's just amazing. It's like they just flipped a switch and he was just never mentioned once. And in, in all of the press I did for Incredibles 2, I did the long lead day and the junket for that. I did Pixar Pier junket, but they never mentioned him once. And as you and I both know, they would <laughs> contort themselves to mention John Lasseter, oh. you know, in every setting. Even in, you know, in Wreck-It Ralph, the long lead day that we went to, they never brought him up and... I went to a press day for the much maligned uh, Frozen Christmas special last mm -hmm. year. And even then, uh, you know, John was instrumental in bringing this all together and, you know, this and that and nothing about him at all anymore. 
I mean, I get it. I really do. These very powerful, very prominent men who just go away. Well, you know where, you know where we are going to talk what? about John Lester mm-hmm. at our event uh, in November. This, this we are. This we are. Oh, I meant to tell you. I, I, I'm going to put this in the mail to you. Have you seen the Jungle Cruise picture book yet? Oh, no, the one with uh, John Lasseter as the skipper. Not only is the skipper, it includes a CD where John narrates the attraction. Wow. I deliberately got a copy for you and for Len, because I figured, you know, that <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got it to people who would appreciate it. And, and in fact, I've been trying to get somebody at Disney Publishing to confirm that they went back in and jiggered the illustrations a little bit so it didn't... I mean, the, the original illustrations, it was John. I mean, it was dead on John. And right. now they're not quite as caricature but it's still John. <laughs> but, but yes, folks, that came out this summer from Disney Press. It's a picture book, and it... I understand it was just sort of like, okay, put them out there and don't talk about them. Right. So, yeah, go to your local Barnes & Noble and pick up a cup of copy because I'm pretty sure there's not going to be a second printing. <laughs> so speaking of second chances and unlikely comebacks, are you familiar with, with the Adult Swim series Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law? Oh, of course. It's a scream. <sighs> this has been one of my favorite things on Adult Swim. Well, actually, you know, the, the, it's it's worth noting, the night that Adult Swim debuted, Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law, was one of the shows in the original programming block. Ran for four seasons, only 39 episodes, but they're all gems. I've gone through a good portion of my adult life doing a really bad Peter Posthumus, you know, did you get that thing I sent you? <laughs> you know, but it just, if you're a fan at all of the Hanna-Barbera shows, I get the half the fun of, of Harvey Birdman was that you had Fred Flintstone basically show up as, you know, Tony Soprano. I was just watching one last night where Captain Caveman and his his son, Captain Caveman Jr., were dealing with the fact that they weren't teaching evolution in schools. And it's just, it's this really sort of funhouse mirror on on what we were dealing with in the early 2000s during the days of the Bush administration. And which brings me to, after all of that time, they're doing a brand new Harvey Birdman. Oh, thank God. But this one, it's not Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. It's Harvey Birdman, attorney general. And I don't want to give too much away here. It's a half hour long. It's going to be airing on October 14th. But do you remember Harvey's old boss, who, by the way, was voiced, I I want to say, by Stephen Colbert? Yep, Stephen Colbert, yeah. So that gentleman with the eye patch is now the president of the United States. And he has decided he doesn't want the job anymore, so he wants to get impeached. Back on October 14th on Adult Swim. There on go. the other hand, if you if you want something a little more gentle and, and that much sweeter, Drew and I have been watching Hilda, the new Netflix original. That's based on the Luke Pearson graphic novels. Yes, which are Eisner nominated, I believe. Oh. So yeah, they're, they're a pretty big deal, you know, in the comic book community but i had never i had never read them before had you um to be honest my daughter alice brought this to my attention in fact she was mentioning that if you're a fan of the graphic novel they have sort of rounded up the design a little bit to make it that much more palatable or easy to work with for animation Uh, by the way again Mm -hmm. 
folks who were doing the animation on this one, Mercury Filmworks, who... Yeah, they're amazing. They do all the Mickey Mouse shorts. They did the Tigger movie, Wander Over Yonder. Yeah, they're amazing. Well, they've done some really stunning work with this one. It just, it has such beautiful design. Yeah, it's an amazing looking show. Definitely check that one out, folks. It dropped on September 21st. And there's 13 episodes for the first season, and I'm hoping that you know this one gets picked up for a second season. It sort of scratches that Gravity Falls itch a little bit. It too. does, it does. Although I, I have to admit, given that you know you and I were just watching Disenchanted, it is interesting to watch these long form stories that get parceled out over a bunch of episodes. You know, they yeah you know, creating a world, more of a mythology, that sort of thing. Well, I, I guess if, if we're talking up long-form storytelling, I guess we should mention the DuckTales Season 2 coming back this month, right? This is our first yes, show for October. October 20th. Yeah. yeah. Kind of interesting to see who's coming on board to do voice work this time around. It's amazing. It's an amazing list of people. I'm always happy to see Tom Kenny show up anywhere. But right. Edgar Wright? Yeah. <laughs> Did you see his tweet when he said, I think I've peaked? <laughs> Uh, that I'm a, now I'm a voice. Uh, for those of you that know, Edgar Wright directed Shaun of the Dead and uh, Baby Driver, and he's a very, very big deal uh, filmmaker, but he's going to be lending his, his voice to DuckTales. Pretty exciting. I, I agree. I agree. Very much looking forward to where this goes. It, it, at the very least, just to see if Paget Brewster gets to see more than you know say more than boys in this coming season yeah so and did you see they renewed uh renewed it for the third season already i so okay lots more ducktales to come i have been asking folks what are your thoughts do you think they'll actually reunite the boys and dell of this season or with a third season often just going to be one of these things where it's just sort of like come back in season three right (laughs) They'll get at them in the same room. Right, yeah. Just like just like Gravity Falls, mm-hmm. Ford walks through the portal, and then we have to wait however many months for, for the next season. Uh, you're killing me. Well, so speaking of Disney folks, when we get back from our, our break here, we're coming up on the, the 45th anniversary of the release of Robin Hood, and the kind of a controversial Disney film for a bunch of reasons, but we'll get that to us in a sec. Hang in there. We're back. You and I both know if you talk with the people who did Zootopia, they love Disney's Robin Hood. They do, yeah. The film from 73. On the other hand, if you talk to animation fans, this is a kind of a controversial movie because of how much film footage from earlier Disney films is repurposed and recycled. Yes. There's that, that famous phony King of England dance number about two-thirds of the way through that it's Aristocats, it's the the Dwarf Silly song, it's King Louie dancing with Baloo from Jungle Book. Yep. It, it, it is this Frankenstein of a scene. When people talk about it, they typically point to Wooly Reitherman, who is the director of the film. When Walt was sort of stepping away from animation... To concentrate on the parks, Wooly uh, went from being a, a directing animator to sort of, you know, the, the ubermeister of, of animation at Disney. And he deliberately did this sort of stuff for the films. He thought he was actually 
protecting the animators, making their lives easier by you know, sort of reaching back into the library and pulling scenes that they could do this with. What are your thoughts on it? Well, it's interesting. You know, a couple of years ago, somebody was circulating that compilation, YouTube compilation of all the shots that Disney had kind of repurposed for other animated mm-hmm. movies. And so I found this interview where somebody reached out to Floyd Norman, mm-hmm. who, you know, worked on those movies, too. And he said that it was all woolly and that people thought that it was an easier animated situation, you know, easier on the animators. But it actually wasn't that copying those sequences took more time and more effort, and it pissed off the animators because they wanted to do something original. So all this stuff about, oh, it was just sort of a photocopy easy job, it turns out it was not. It was a lot harder, and it looks not as good, obviously. I mean, there's a lot about Robin Hood. Even the design, obviously the designs of every character Mm -hmm. are borrowed from another Disney movie. You know, they're all sort of Jungle Book (laughs) repurposed. Mm -hmm. Um, And Floyd said that the reason that he did it like that was that that he was just really nervous about trying anything new and he wanted to stick with what he knew worked so that's why they were just copying designs and animated sequences just wholeheartedly for robin hood which and which is not good i don't don't think it's a great animated movie by any stretch of the imagination Mm -hmm. people point at that as sort of the nadir you know in fact for me what's fascinating is if you look at how Disney followed that with the rescuers. And if you're looking close at the rescuers, they do a lift from Bambi. I mean, it's not, you know, a completely pure film. But, right. you know, if you dig down into Wooly's background, it turns out that from the very first time he animated, when he got his shot to, he, he did a sort of a double length short called Goliath 2. In fact, this is your homework assignment, folks. Uh, go on YouTube after you've listen to this podcast and look at Goliath 2 because this is this actually went out into theaters I want to say in January of 1960 this is before he tackled his really first big animation assignment for Disney which of course was 101 Dalmatians Mm -hmm. but this was paired with Toby Tyler and what's fascinating about watching this thing is in the first five minutes of this short you get to see where Wooly had pulled footage from Dumbo. He pulled footage from mm-hmm. Peter Pan. He pulled footage from Alice in Wonderland, even Sleeping Beauty, which was it had just been done the previous year. Now, what's particularly interesting about this is Wooly did this because this was the very first time that Disney had used xerography, that technique where basically they could take a, a raw drawing, a rough drawing, and, you know, through making use of, again, the, the Xerox machine, get all of the line work onto a piece of acetate that they could then, you know, paint up and get into a film. It, it lowered the cost of making the films. Walt himself really didn't care for xerography, especially coming after Sleeping Beauty. Walt had put, you know, what, six, seven, eight years of the studio's time into that movie, which was supposed to be a moving tapestry. And yes, it's a beautiful looking film, but it, you know, the irony is it's a moving tapestry, but it didn't move audiences. You know, that people just sort of, this is pretty, and why do I keep falling asleep? If you talk with people like Don Hahn, Don eventually became producer, and Wooly really, in a lot of ways, wasn't just a director, he was a producer. He was made a lot of shots about what films the studio would make, 
And Don tells a story about being in a room with Don where they were looking at storyboards and Don would go down the board and, you know, look at a drawing and fold down the corner of the drawing and say, well, we don't have a stu- anybody at the studio who can animate that. So that scene's out. The story people were just infuriated by Wooly because it was like he would chop these big holes in the movie. But it's like we don't have anybody who can do the scene you're proposing here. We don't have an animator who has the skill anymore to do that sort of thing. And it wasn't until... Wooly was sort of forced into retirement. I want to say Fox and the Hound, right? He started on Fox and the Hound, yeah. and, and then Art Stevens and that bunch just sort of staged a coup and got him pushed off the, the project. Well, some some of the animators liked the xerography, though, because they, they liked seeing their own line on the film, right? I mean, for those for people at home that maybe don't know what, what it, that process looks like, I think that Jungle Book and 101 Dalmatians are good examples. Mm-hmm. They're the kind of, it's very kind of sketchy. Yeah, yeah. Floyd once told me that it was like, he he called the lines hairy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it's an interesting look for mm-hmm. sure. But anyway, some of the animators liked it because it was literally their line work being photocopied. No one was painting over it or outlining it or anything going on to the, the movie. I don't know. It wasn't as polished, but it, no lie. It, it did have... I think more energy than the films that were made this way were were looser or fun. Yeah. And I think it also was a technological step forward because you wouldn't have been able to do 101 Dalmatians without that oh, technology. Oh god, no. 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 Uh, you know, right. it's just you know, people would've been throwing all those dots. throwing themselves off the rooftops, you know, <laughs> having to do all of those spots on the Dalmatians, but Right. <laughs> Speaking of Don Han though, for those who actually went to the D23 Expo last July, Don, while he was there, shared the trailer for Howard, the Howard Ashman story. Howard Ashman was was Alan Menken's partner on those films that really turned around Disney feature animation, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. But, you know, of course, we we lost poor Howard, I want to say, just a couple of months before Beast came out into theaters. We lost him to AIDS. And... Don wanted to make sure the world would remember Howard. So he, he worked with, you know, the Ashman sister. They pulled together this amazing film that's out on the festival circuit now. And I, I, I've been asked a number of times, when can I see this movie? And just yesterday at the Aspen Film Festival, Howard, the Howard Ashman story aired. And in the coming weeks, there's a, a bunch of places that you can get a chance. So, for example, if you're out in Indianapolis... The Heartland uh, Film Festival is going to be presenting Howard on October 14th, 17th, 19th, 20th, and 21st. And then, this is kind of wild, on the very same day, November 15th, the Howard Ashman story is going to be airing in Washington, D.C. in the Mary Pickford Theater at the Library of Congress. And But at the same time, it's also going to be screened at the Cartoon Animation Expo in Burbank, which, you know, you, you've been to, right, Drew? Or no, I've never, I've never been. Maybe I'll have to go this year to uh, report back on everything. But I've never, yeah. never been to the expo. No, I want to say that's Tina Price and her her group. They've been doing that for a bunch of years now, being very supportive of creators in the animation industry. And uh, yeah, definitely an event worth checking out. And you know, we'd love to hear you know what this, how this film turned out. I'm kind of hoping that once it completes its run to the festival circuit that we'll 
get a Blu-ray or a DVD or at the very least have this thing pop up on PBS or, or some cable channel somewhere. I mean, it just... Or perhaps the Disney streaming Ooh, service even, in 2019. Even better. Yeah. By the way, did you see the sort of the precursor for that ESPN Plus? Yes. They just announced that, I guess they launched officially in April... And they just announced that they've gotten more than a million subscribers, which I guess is a, a huge milestone for them. But it's a, a $4.99 a month service. I guess this is considered in a lot of ways for the company a trial run for Disney Play. Uh, so I guess we can assume it's going to be something similar price point wise yeah because they said they're not going to have as much original programming at least initially so they can't charge 9.99 mm. a month um for it but yeah it should be lower than that and i'm very excited for for whatever the streaming service has to offer yeah i agree i can just it, so i have to admit just the other day i was looking at the casting for the the new i don't want to say live action but the the, the lady and the tramp remake and it's sort of like Right. Really? Play <laughs> the tramp? Well, who knows, folks? It may be a wonderful film. But I'll tell you what. We'll talk further about those efforts, you know, Disney Play, and, and likewise get more into uh, Ralph Rex the Internet on our next show. But do keep in mind, though, that if you enjoy listening to myself and Drew, we do have that Pixar in the Park events that we're doing with the very nice folks with Storybook Destinations. That'll be happening... November 9th through the 12th at Walt Disney World. That's right. And we have all sorts of cool stories we'll be sharing and all sorts of fun activities. So come out, folks. You'll have a wonderful time with myself and Mr. Taylor. We'll have more details this year on our next fine tuning, which will be along very shortly, right? I hope so. Okay. Well, then. All right. Till then, folks. Uh, on behalf of Mr. Taylor and myself, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.